I've been reading a little bit uh, this weekend about the subject of wealth management. It's not because I have any wealth to manage, but because I was curious. Uh, some people make a lot of money uh, managing, uh, they make a lot of money, but they aren't necessarily skilled in managing it. So the result is a huge industry uh, that's devoted to managing other people's wealth. If you Google the words wealth management, I did, up pops about 173 million references that provide the information and the names of wealth management groups and organizations or people. The largest wealth management company in North America actually is called the Bank of America Global Wealth and Investment Management Fund. And it manages uh, private client assets of $792 billion, which is just a few bucks short of a trillion, which is a lot of money. As a follower of Christ uh, this morning, you may not uh, perceive yourself or believe yourself to be a wealth manager, but that's then where your perspective may differ from the teaching of the Bible. So I'd like to direct our attention for a few minutes uh, to a parable taught by Jesus that may clarify our thinking on this subject because uh, we are flatly told that we are, in a very real sense, wealth managers. And we have been uh, uh, granted a stewardship of wealth from the Almighty. So the story of, or the parables in the third book of the New Testament, the author Luke's uh, account of the life and teaching of Jesus. And first I'm just going to read all the way through this brief parable. And then uh, I'm going to go through it a second time. This, we're going to reason through it quickly, uh, but succinctly together and focus on some of the details our second time through. So Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, it's often known as the parable of the three servants. Verse 11, uh, Jesus uh, begins, the passage says, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. Because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant country to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, the nobleman called together ten servants, and he gave them ten pounds of silver to invest for him while he was gone. When he returned as king, he called in the servants to whom he had given the money, he wanted to find out what they had done with the money and what their profits were. The first servant reported a tremendous gain, ten times as much as the original amount. Well done, the king said. You're a trustworthy servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. And Matthew chapter 25, which also contains this parable, adds the words, let's celebrate. 
Uh, It says the the nobleman says, let's celebrate. Verse 18, the next servant also reported a good gain, five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You can be governor over five cities. Let's celebrate. Uh, The third servant, though, brought back only the original amount of money and said, I hid it and kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. And the king replied, am I hard? If you knew so much about me and how tough I am, why didn't you deposit the money in the bank so I could have at least earned some interest on it? Then turning to the others, Standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who earned the most. But master, they said, that servant has enough already. Yes, the king replied, but to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who are unfaithful, even what little they have will be taken away. Now let's just think this through verse by verse together uh, quickly. Verse 11, first to repeat, crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. Because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Now Jesus, at this point, and Luke's description of the life and teaching of Jesus, he is at the height of his popularity. Uh, this, his teaching, his magnetism as an individual, these astonishing uh, miracles that he was performing for the well-being of so many people were, of course, generating all kinds of news, and the nation was starting to take notice. And great crowds of people would come out when they discovered that he was going to be in a given location. Based on Old Testament prophecy, his Jewish audience on this particular day had a strongly held belief for many centuries that a spiritual and political leader would arise in Israel's future and he would lead the nation to a time of unprecedented uh, prosperity and peace. Well, uh, he is, they believe that he would break the control of all the foreign powers and then lead the nation into this new era. Well, Jesus doesn't tell his audience that day that the, your ideas about all that are all wrong. Uh, he doesn't indicate that at all. He just says that this kingdom as some of the Old Testament prophecies describe and predict is not going to begin immediately. And then uh, he begins teaching what are known, one of what are known as the kingdom parables. And if you study biblical theology and so on, we, we see that the, 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 the teaching of, of what Jesus calls the kingdom of God It's both very fascinating, but it's also real mysterious. Uh, He tells this story, for example, to correct the idea that this kingdom that was prophesied is not going to begin immediately. 
But in other passages, he says the kingdom has arrived with him. So if we get, there's a whole lot of teaching about the subject of the kingdom of God and and the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we overview all of that and sort of synthesize it in one uh, package, which a number of systematic theologians have done over a long period of time, the common view is that God and his kingdom is continually breaking into human reality as he progressively reveals himself over the course of the human race. It's a fascinating uh, teaching. We see this in the Old Testament where he forms this nation, Israel, and he enters into this special relationship with that nation, and then he begins revealing himself to that nation and then surrounding nations by his engagement with this specific group of people. And then later in the history of the, of the country, he begins revealing himself and his character more and more clearly through the teaching of these prophets that he would rise up uh, among them and that were recognized. But then Jesus, when he appears on the scene, he says that there is an entirely new inbursting of this kingdom that has come upon the earth with his arrival and his uh, presence. And so he says here that this kingdom is in some sense very real. It's among the people. And yet there's also a much bigger and broader sense in which it's going to begin expanding and developing across the face of the earth. And then at some future date, some of those Old Testament prophecies are most definitely going to be fulfilled. There's mystery there. It's very difficult to interpret some of those passages. But in the future, God is going to regenerate reality as we know it, and his people will have a role in that future reality. So that's a part of what he is saying here. And these kingdom parables, he explains what life is going to be like during this intervening period between his arrival and this great future day when the kingdom will become even more evident. So in verse 12, he says, A nobleman was called away to a distant country to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten servants, and he gave them ten pounds of silver to invest for him while he was gone. Now, in a number of Jesus' parables, he implies that he is the major figure uh, being described. And in this passage, it's quite clear that he perceives himself and teaches himself in some sense to be the nobleman, and he says he is going to a distant country, but then says he will definitely be returning. Who are his servants? Well, everyone during this coming era that he draws to himself uh, and over whom he reigns as king and prince and husband and father. There's all these beautiful metaphors to describe God's relationship with us as his people once he opens our minds and eyes to his identity 
and his reality, and we believe in Christ, and then he unites himself to us uh, spiritually. Uh, What does he give them, the nobleman? He says, they are given something of extraordinary value to invest for their king. Uh, The price of silver and gold, of course, and the markets of the world have just continued to increase. Uh, And you can have 10 pounds of silver uh, today would bring a pretty uh, hefty uh, piece of of, uh, return. But in this period, 10 pounds of silver is an astonishing commitment of wealth, something of great value that the nobleman is entrusting to his servants. We move on, verse 15. When he returned, the king called in his servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what they had done with the money and what their profits were. And then as we read before, the first servant reported tremendous gain, ten times as much, well done, you're trustworthy, and so on. Next servant also reports a really great gain, well done, Uh, let's celebrate. Uh, Jesus is, some of these parables are quite clear. Uh, He is saying that after his departure, he will eventually return as king and that his servants during this era, this coming era, will be uh, held accountable for the wealth uh, that they have been entrusted with. And so in this parable, two of the three, which is not bad, uh, 66%, the two of the three have been trustworthy. They use uh, what they have been given to earn a profit, and after they provide their re- report, they are deeply affirmed and rewarded, even uh, disproportionate. Um, I mean, some guy invests a few bucks and he's suddenly given authority over what this 10 cities. Uh, you can probably generate some pretty significant income if you were governor over 10 cities or five or whatever. And then uh, he says, let's celebrate. And so... I've read some interesting uh, biblical studies material that describes God as a party animal. Uh, He sets up these rituals in the Old Testament period for the nation of Israel in which they go to Jerusalem and have these great celebrations, great food, great connections, great relationships, celebration. And we often don't necessarily think of God that way, but the scripture most in this passage as well. I'll never forget as long as I live... Uh, that uh, we, Iris and I, were leading a, a small group of couples in Hong Kong years ago when we uh, lived down there. There's a bunch of Cafe Pacific pilots, mostly from Canada, who happened to be living in Hong Kong at the time. And we just had the, uh, a lot of fun. We had some good chemistry, but we were driving to this small group that we helped lead this one particular evening. And for whatever reasons, I don't know, I don't think I'd ever prayed this prayer before. But Iris and I were praying in the car as we were driving over there. And I said, Lord, you know, give us some laughter tonight. Uh, just let's, let's enable us to really enjoy each other's company and have fun together and laugh. In the middle of that meeting, I've never experienced anything quite like it before or since. But three of us guys, we got to joking around. And there was about eight couples in this group. We got to laughing so hard 
that three of us had to leave the room <laughs> because we just couldn't get it back together. And, and everybody just had this extraordinarily fun time that particular, I think it was an answer to prayer. God is real interested in us enjoying each other, enjoying him, and I believe enjoying life. And this is revealed in this passage. Um, uh, the clear teaching of this parable, God can be pleased and is often pleased uh, with the service of his people. He can be satisfied. Now, the Christian community around the world, of course, is very large. There's good teaching. There's not so good teaching, accurate and inaccurate teaching. And sometimes some teachers will imply that God always demands more. He's like an unfair employer. But it's not only false, uh, it is very, very damaging because if we don't have a perception of God in which he, in fact, is who he re- what he's really like, that he can be pleased, he can be satisfied, and that he is reasonable and fair and honorable, then uh, we're not going to uh, have a very positive uh, relationship with him, nor are we going to be interested in pursuing such a relationship uh, with him. Now we move on to the third servant in verse 20. The third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, I hid it and kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. So this third servant is fearful. He did nothing with what he had been given. He earned nothing. With it, why he had come to some very wrong conclusions. First, he was wrong about his king's character. You're a hard man to deal with. Uh, This parable itself it reveals the king to be trusting. He entrusts his servants with this wealth. He is fair. He's honorable. He's trustworthy to reward faithful effort. But somehow this particular servant, according to the parable, he's, his, his thinking is that somehow all screwed up. He does not perceive God to be whom he really is and his beauty and his magnificence and his greatness and creativity and loving kindness and reliability and generosity. He has come to some very deadly and wrong conclusions about the nature of God. He's wrong about who owned what. He says, you take what isn't yours. Now, some passage, uh, some translations translate this servant as slave, but that's probably a more accurate uh, translation. As a slave, he owned nothing, absolutely nothing, and yet somehow he came to believe that he did. So there's this underlying attitude of arrogance and presumption. And then he's wrong about the future. He says, you harvest crops you didn't plant. That's a little complicated to understand, but I think what we can say is he has a very limited view of reality. He has a very short-term focus. Uh, He is ignorant of the bigger picture of uh, the king and what the king is up to. Uh, and over the long, longer term, he would earn much more by responding 
well to the stewardship that he's been giving and being consumed with short-term gain. Harvest, man, we've got to accumulate all we can here and fight and scratch and bite and claw for whatever we can get because the world, or, you know, God's a dangerous, uh, the noble, the king, the nobleman is a uh, unreliable and dangerous uh, individual or unfair. So he is petty. So the king replies, am I hard? If you knew so much about me and how tough I am, why didn't you deposit the money in the bank? So I could have at least earned some interest on it. Pretty, you know, and that's pretty risk-free, you know, put it in a simple money market account, you know, whatever. Then turning to the others nearby, the king ordered, take the money from the servant, give it to the one who has earned the most. And then these very sobering, sobering words. But master, they said, that servant has enough already. Yes, but the king replied, but to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who are unfaithful, even what little they have will be taken away. So the fearful, arrogant, and petty steward, he loses everything uh, in this uh, particular passage. Well, six quick insights for us um, that I think we could, what's the takeaway from our brief focus on the scripture this morning? Number one, uh, we can clearly see from this passage that God's kingdom program is among us. It is expanding. Paul says in the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians, he says, The word of God is constantly moving forward and increasing and bearing fruit. Now, sometimes it may not appear that way, but we, you and I, do not have access to being able to see everything that God is up to in every place. But the teaching of the scripture is that God is really resourceful. Uh, He is really capable, and he is really, really determined to move his kingdom program out across the face of the earth and to draw all those that he desires to himself during the current era and that he will not uh, be uh, defeated or frustrated in any way. And the point, one point of this parable is though now the, king, all the, the kingdom is partly hidden right now, it will eventually be fully revealed. Second, we are each given something to invest, uh, to collaborate with God in the development of his kingdom program in all of its many uh, faceted expressions. Uh, Even in our group here this morning, I know of perhaps a dozen different types of expressions of of God working uh, in this country and even beyond, and many of you are involved in those very strategic efforts uh, to bear fruit and to display and represent God's kingdom and to fulfill his work uh, in, among the people around you. So we're all given something to invest. Um, and, of course, silver in the parable can represent money. Uh, but to keep our spirits in tune, uh, we really need to give a part of what he has invested 
and given to us in his program. Uh, Iris and I, we give to a broad variety of things. Uh, We give some to our church here. We give some to some individuals that we really believe in and that uh, we believe are engaged in, in strategic ministries for him in different ways. We personally don't feel that we have to give all of the money that we feel like we need to give to the Lord, to the church, and we never have. And uh, that may be uh, heretical for some of you, but uh, that's kind of the conviction that uh, we have uh, come to. But we try to give generously, and we try to give with a willing spirit. Uh, This uh, stewardship can also represent, of course, capabilities. The Apostle Paul devotes a significant time in two of his letters to explaining the specific capabilities that God uh, has given, is giving, and will continue to give to the people and his global family and community. And we are responsible uh, for discerning what it is that he would have us do in what context and among whom and with what a target audience and so forth. But he's most faithful to direct us as we seek him for that wisdom. Uh, next, third, each of us will eventually be held responsible for how we manage and invest what we've been given, uh, our time, our money, and our gifts. And uh, willful ignorance is no excuse. Um, The biblical view is that we own nothing. We are simply stewards, and the question is not how much shall I give away of my time, of my energy, of my resources, of my money. The real question is Uh, How much do I retain? Uh, How much do I need to fulfill the priorities that God has given me and also to be engaged in helping support and sustain uh, others in their efforts? The great challenge, of course, in doing this, uh, Paul states it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to the thinking of this world, but be transformed by renewing by the renewing of your mind, so you may discern the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Giving liberally uh, to it, it, when it dawns on us, you know, ever more clearly that, oh my goodness, God is, his kingdom is among us. And we, each of us, I have the opportunity to be engaged in that kingdom and to serve him in whatever way and to invest a significant amount of myself and my time and my energy in his program. Of course, that's not not even comprehended by the broader global culture. Uh, The thinking of the global culture and just common things, you, you save, you strive, you accumulate because... It's just so important to be safe. And fear is a big driving factor in people clinging and hanging on to what they believe to be, what they own, and trying to you know, take absolutely every step they can to secure their future. And, of course, that is antithetical sometimes to trusting God, who invites us to trust him and step out and be engaged and and give and then trust him for the results. I grew up in a very secular environment. None of my friends in high school or most of my uh, college years were 
uh, devoted Christians in any sense. Uh, Almost all of my college friends went into the business community, uh, real estate. There are a few doctors and lawyers and architects uh, scattered out there uh, that were friends. And a number of them have become Christian men over the years, almost 40 years now since I graduated from college. And it's interesting to observe the Christian community over a long period of time um, because some appear, of course, I ultimately don't know because I don't have all the information about any given individual, but some appear to have been and continue to be great stewards of their time, their energies, their money. You can see this fruitfulness that they are actively engaged in whatever vocational avenue that they have chosen and are involved in, but there is a vitality and a fruitfulness to their life. And then others, not so much. Uh, it would appear that they are their lives much more resemble the third uh, servant. Uh, they appear to be captured by the fear uh, and the desire to just accumulate more and more and more for that rainy day. And uh, so as we observe the Christian community over time, what Jesus teaches about the current era becomes real clear. It becomes fairly uh, evident in the people around us. And then lastly, as we uh, wrap this up, this is quite a bit of material this morning. If we do a poor job, uh, Jesus says we will experience loss in the future kingdom. Our acceptance is based purely on the work of Christ. As we trust in the finished work of Christ, he embraces us with his open and loving arms and unites us to himself eternally, and that is unconditional. It's based only on the work of Jesus. I've got a sparrow right over here. It's flying through here this morning. I've offered 100 Redmond B for everybody who could give me a dead sparrow, by the way. Interlude there. Um, see if I can recapture this. Um, the um, we are responsible, and in some sense, uh, in ways that aren't fully described, even though we're accepted, your future destiny, in a qualitative sense, is in some way. My future destiny in a qualitative sense is in some way most dependent upon our stewardship. And that is one of the blazing messages that comes through from this parable. Doing a good job depends in part on having an accurate view of God and ourselves. Sometimes that can be difficult if we've been exposed to inaccurate or bad teaching. If we have had, a some of us, a dysfunctional family background and modeling that appears to, that that is very difficult. It's hard to get an accurate emotional sense of God if we haven't had warm and loving and affirming parents. It can be very difficult, but it's possible to reprogram our thinking and to move and progress in that. And then lastly, if we do a good job, we will receive a tremendous, even disproportionate, lasting reward in God's great trustworthiness and faithfulness. Uh, 
And besides that future thing, it can be great fun right now. Uh, two days ago, um, I was uh, riding. Um, I've been out for lunch, and I came back, and there's this big construction project. They were completely renovating uh, this house across the street from us. And there's a big construction crew because you, you guys have seen it. You know, they got the jackhammers, and it's a big crew. I mean, they're, they're completely expanding this house by probably a third. So uh, there's lots and lots of, of men and workers. And this one man, older man, he looks about my age. He looks like he's had a pretty rough life. Um, and uh, he doesn't have a very sophisticated job. His job is to shovel the mud uh, off of the pathway to get into the construction site. I mean, he's not a concrete or a steel worker or anything. He's got this hard hat on. And so, uh, you know, he's out there on the street or right there on the front of the property every day because that's his job. It's like, hey, how you doing? You know, and he, ni hao, you know, and he, he, he comes back, you know, he's, he probably thinks I'm some zoo animal or something. You know, just come, you know, uh, friend, probably from the pro- pro- provinces or or whatever, but you know, we've kind of struck up this little warm connection there, and uh, you know, a little bit of exchange. So I, I had a book in my hand and my reading glasses, and he came over. Hey, you know, his 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 sweater was laying on the top of these bushes at our house in front of our front gate. I was, sure need a monk. So he comes over and we start chatting a little bit, and he starts. He says, "Well, you know, he's looking." I had a Kindle. He starts looking at the Kindle, and. Uh, then he starts to look at my reading glasses. And, you know, I'm sure he doesn't make a whole lot of money. And he put these reading glasses on. I said, wow. You know, it's probably his eyesight is probably, you know, pretty weak. And he was just fascinated and looking at these, these reading glasses. And uh, so we chatted a minute and, you know, went on. I went inside. I went up the stairs. And I just had the clearest sense in the world that I was supposed to give him those reading glasses. So I, I, uh, I went, because we had some copies of this book, The Life of Jesus, and I had this little track that somebody had given me this past week, too, that was really well written. So I go down, and I, you know, I went back out, and I and, uh, said, Yama, yeah. <laughs> and so I gave him this book, and I gave him the reading glasses, and he starts, you know, he starts immediately reading it, and he starts to Chinese, and, oh, yes, 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 yes. And so I, when I left, you know, I walked back upstairs. It's been months or years, maybe, probably months, since I had a sense of liberation and freedom. It's a, such a small little thing. I mean, the reading glasses maybe cost 200 quid. It's nothing to me, you know, this book. But I believe with all of my heart, and I experienced it a couple of days ago, if you and I are listening, just a little bit, I'm not the best listener to God in the world by no stretch. Every, you know, people that know me know that. But try to listen some. And if we listen and respond, there is a joyful result. I felt a liberation and a joy. And about an hour later, um, I... Uh, Look down second floor, down those windows, you know, after he'd been, and the, the, the crew foreman and several other guys was, you know, when we were looking at this book, you know, and checking these glasses out. And then, and then later in the day, you know, this crew foreman still had his head, head buried in this, in this little book. So I'm sure God will use it in his own purposes. Parable of the Three Servants. 
it's, it's all the grace of God. Parable of the three servants. Let's you and me be good servants. There's no downside. There's all upside. As Jim Elliott said, the guy who was killed at age 26, giving he was killed by some Aka Indians in South America trying to reach this group of people, died. Handsome, well-educated man. Uh, he, he wrote before he was killed, he said, he is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's do that. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful passage. I pray that you would use whatever was useful in my humble remarks about it. Inspire us, motivate us, encourage us. Help us to understand that you are very able to be satisfied and pleased that you reward us disproportionately to what we give. And I pray you would liberate each of us so that we can do that even more fruitfully and effectively, both for your pleasure and for the the great blessings that will come to us as a result. We pray in Jesus' name.